Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the talkie bit. This sort of feels to me a little bit like our first Sunday back. Uh, I know it's not, and we'll talk a little bit about last week in a moment, but I think it maybe feels a little bit that way to me just because, you know, there's a few more kids around. Um, we gathered here last week, and we had, a, I thought, a very interesting conversation about questions for the new year. And I went straight from that conversation to seeing some friends from out of town who were in Winnipeg uh, for business stuff. And we had a very interesting conversation about what we've been up to in our gathering. They asked about it. They were curious about the table. They're aware of uh, the table and the, that community and generally speaking what we're up to. And so I tried to sum it up, including some of the things that we discussed. And for those of you that weren't here, those themes included things like how to have a sustainable hope, how to push back on prevailing norms, how to balance compassion with self-preservation or self-care, uh, the question of why why gather, not just us as a community, but as humans in general, what why does this matter? Uh, the consideration of what narratives we believe our life is about. And so some, some uh, curiosity, some inquiry about both examining our own narratives and the ones we've inherited and how they change over time and circumstance, those sorts of things. Uh, how might we live the rest of our lives well? How do we feel about our life to this point? So a bit of evaluation. How do I prepare for my, my people, those close to me, my kids in particular? Uh, Sarah was talking about this. How do I prepare my kids for my end, for my death? So I, I kind of summed that up a little bit in my conversation with our friends, and their response, and these are, these are thoughtful people, their response was surprise at the weightiness of the topics. And I think I said something in response along the lines of the table being a community that doesn't shy away from serious topics and a group of people in general that are willing to, to I would say, go fairly deep without a lot of preamble. I, I expect there are other communities that could be characterized in a similar way, but I can honestly say that I'm, I'm really pleased to be part of this one and really glad to have the conversations that we do. I thought that was a fascinating uh, conversation last week. And these are... Very interesting topics. Among the other things that I find hopeful about that list of topics is that, that it's very oriented to action. I don't know if I just wrote them that way. I hope not. I don't think I, I, don't think I biased them that way in my note-taking. Um, but there's lots of how in here. There's lots of, what does agency look like in here? And uh, I find that really heartening. There are lots of reasons to fold up shop, you know? It's not very hard to find a reason to give up. Um, Finding a reason to go on and to continue to try to engage with big things. That, That takes a little more work sometimes, right? Now, about this, 
more extended consideration, this exploration of what we've sort of in the early going been calling love. Uh, if you read the blurb, uh, you might have noticed that the way that I framed love was along the lines of being the opposite of hate. So maybe we should start there, because both those words, love and hate, are so sprawling uh, as to really be kind of elusive. But also, they're very powerful. And I've often found myself feeling, and I've sometimes found myself saying out loud, that I need to be more careful with both of those. I need to have a personal practice of reserving those words for worthy occasions or circumstances. So, because that's not an easy thing to do, and and doing it in any common or shared way requires some navigating, I'm going to suggest that we start with some shared understandings. We don't have to agree with these outside of this context. We don't even have to agree with them in this context, but shared awareness of them can be really helpful. So, that's kind of where I'd like to start. So here's a, here's a sort of, you know, a published definition uh, of hate from the, you know, the, the canon of the Western Dictionary Collective or something, right? This, is, this would pop up in most dictionaries, something like this. First line definition would be something like intense hostility and aversion, usually deriving from fear, anger, or sense of injury. That's an interesting definition already because those who chose to say what was said there were already starting to try to get around behind the behavior, right? Already trying to go, where does this come from? Intense hostility and aversion. Okay, hatred, intense hostility and aversion. Usually deriving from. Now we're having a different conversation about hate. Now we're having a conversation about needs that aren't met. We're having a conversation about the history of injury. We're having a conversation about who's powering, holding power over whom, and how are they exercising that, right? We're into the next part of the conversation within that first line of the definition. So I think that's, that's encouraging. They could have just stopped at intense hostility and aversion, right? And we still would have known we were talking about hate. That's definition one, okay? Definition two, not unlike it, extreme dislike or disgust, which feels like, a, a, just a little step back from intense hostility and aversion, right? It's a little bigger bubble there. Um, extreme dislike or disgust, antipathy, there's an everyday word, uh, or loathing, maybe a little more of an everyday word, right? If you're in your therapist's office, you're more likely to talk about loathing than antipathy, but either way, extreme dislike and disgust. Now, I don't want to speak for anybody else on this, but personally, I can say that there are very few things in my life that meet that standard. There are there are some, but it's a short list. And I can also say that I know very little about intense hostility flowing either toward me or out of me. It's neither my personality nor my lived experience. This is not a virtue, I don't think. I, I don't understand it that way. That's just not part of my history. I also know very little by experience about the ways in which generational trauma or oppression can accumulate providing the ground in which injury and fear can readily add up to something that gets acted out in anger. I just don't know very much about that. I'm learning about that, and I'm learning about it from people who've experienced it, which is incredibly valuable, but, but it's also not the same thing as the sort of impact it has to live through those sorts of experiences. It seems to me that given my lack of experience, I should work very hard 
to suspend my judgment and engage my curiosity about what it might be like to try to live with those kinds of experiences, with the desperation that they can produce, with the, I bracketed, impossibility here, with the possibility of trying to figure out what to do with feelings that are that powerful. I was talking with somebody uh, this past week who works with small children in a daycare setting, and we were talking about challenging behaviors that sometimes occur in those settings. And the illustration that the person used was getting a small child into a snowsuit uh, in their boots when that child did not wish to. And in this particular case, many of the kids in this daycare didn't have any English. They were children from newcomer families. And she was like, how do you, I, I can't even speak in terms of words meaningfully with this child, you know? Uh, and, 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 but they're obviously having big feelings, right? Because they're coming out. And so we were talking a little bit about, you know, that moment at the stoplight where you're parked next to the car that's doing the boom, 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 boom thing, right? Where the subwoofer's kind of going off. And I'm like, that's the reason we can hear that sound outside the car is because the wavelength is too long for the space. It doesn't fit inside the car. So we hear it outside the car. We can't hear the symbols outside the car. The windows are up, right? But they're, they're just as loud. So it's about something different. And big emotions are kind of like that, right? It, what, especially with, with little people, sometimes with big people too, and sometimes with people who have a lot of power in the world. It's like that feeling doesn't fit inside this convention. We're going to hear it outside the car, metaphorically. We're going to hear it outside the body. We're going to hear it outside the boundaries of the country. We're going to whatever, right? So there's a, there's a metaphor there that was useful to me anyway. <laughs> So what do I do with feelings that are that powerful? How can I learn what it's like to try to figure out what to do with feelings that are that powerful from people who have them? I think the short word for that attempt, that, that attempted learning, is empathy. And as far as I can tell, empathy takes some practice. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not a thing that we can just summon. We, we actually need to, if we're going to be good at it, we actually need to practice it. Now, Having said that, it also seems to me that that's only part of the equation. Most of what I've been describing so far in terms of lived experience, I think, if we, if we kind of took that nature-nurture equation and we applied it to what I've been talking about, most of what I've been talking about so far could fall under nurture in contrast to nature. Now, I don't want to get lost in the philosophical weeds on this, but the open question might be something like, do we arrive in the world as blank slates and then have hatred written onto us by circumstances, teachings, etc.? Or is hatred something that we all have the capacity for just by being human, but some of us go there more than others of us for whatever complex of reasons. So that's framing the question as an either-or, which is, of course, too simple, but sometimes can also help us to wrestle with it a little bit. And I would say that one way to address ourselves briefly to that kind of a question is to say, well, it depends at least on part on what we think of as enacted hatred. What do we think that looks like? It's, um, it's a common piece of ancient wisdom that it's normal to love your neighbor, the one like you, part of your tribe, and to hate your enemy, right? There's many, many versions of that teaching. It's worth remembering that many of the surviving teachings that have that tone or content to them are from contexts where the recipients of the teachings and the generators of the teachings were themselves oppressed. They were, they were militarily occupied. They were governed by folks that were visibly self-interested and corrupt and all sorts of themes that if we draw them out as general themes, we would recognize as current events, right? And so that's a lot of times the context for that teaching. In other words, the context for those ideas, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, are often 
that the circumstances were such that it was easy to hate or at the very least hard to love those not from the inside of your circle. So we might find it relatively easy to have some sympathy for hatred expressed as violence under those kind of circumstances. We might find empathy a little less challenging. And unless we've experienced something similar, we might find ourselves comfortably distant from those realities as we make judgments about them and about the people experiencing them, right? Better you than me, by the way, is not empathy. <laughs> when you say it in a sentence, it kind of makes sense, right? But lots of times when we're attempting to be empathetic, that, that's what's going on. We're just like, phew. <laughs> you know, um, that's not empathy. That's something different. Empathy is a very complicated, very demanding thing. Anyway, here's where this can get more complex. You might remember that a few weeks ago in this space, uh, we considered the ancient law code of Hammurabi. We, we talked about how it got imported into the Hebrew laws, even though the Hebrews at the time were under the governance of, uh, of Hammurabi and his power holders in Mesopotamia, but they still took on some of their laws and added them to their code. I wish I could get inside that history in more detail because that's a very curious thing to me. But in particular, we talked about how the notion of an eye for an eye came into uh, Hebrew law code at that point from Hammurabi's law code and how that way of thinking is still providing the sort of internal air quotes logic for violence in many cases in a contemporary world, in our world. Even our own sort of rules of war, the Geneva Conventions and some of those related uh, bodies of, of uh, international law around conflict use this concept of proportion, proportional response, right? And if you, want to, if you want to think about proportional response in playground terms... It means something like, you hit me with your fist, I get to hit you with my fist, and that's allowed. But it's not okay for me to hit you with a baseball bat unless you hit me with that first. So that's proportional response in playground terms. And when you put it like that, it might sound a little bit ridiculous because we might react internally to the notion of the violence and say, none of that is okay. Nobody should have gotten punched in the first place. And it also makes the obvious problem of escalating violence a little more visible, doesn't it? It makes it sort of more, re- more reachable, a little more understandable, maybe. In any case, clearly that is not the best way forward if peace is something we actually want, whether that's in the playground, the living room, or around the globe. But when we're hurt even in the sort of everyday ways that can so easily happen in our relationships, our homes, our workplaces. Don't answer this, but isn't there often something in us that wants revenge? (laughs) Like, isn't that a thing that happens in us? That impulse, that inclination for revenge, we could look at that and understand that impulse, that human, very kind of natural human feeling, as the roots of hatred. It's the sort of impulse that's running in the background of an eye for an eye. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. And when we feel offended in a conflict, it's often because someone's hurting us back feels out of proportion to whatever hurt they're saying we caused, because we didn't, we didn't cause, they're measuring it wrong. <laughs> and all, all those kinds of things, right? I, what you're describing is nothing like what I did. You don't get to hit me with a baseball bat, I just hit you with my fist. <laughs> right? We don't like the metaphor, but there we go. If we don't like what that way of thinking produces in the world around us, why would we think that it might work in other circumstances? Because the expression of the violence is measurably smaller in some way? 
So that's that's a a curious and not necessarily not necessarily pleasant way to think about what hatred is, but I think it's got some merit. If we're going to put it another way, the question might be why would we turn toward that way of thinking in any circumstance instead of turning away from it? Open question. One possible thing to consider is that we don't turn away from it because we have the sense that removing revenge as a possibility puts us at a power disadvantage, that it weakens our position in the conflict. And there's, there's lots we could explore there, but I'm going to take that idea as a kind of a, that thought as a kind of a signal to turn away from our examination of hatred and towards some thoughts about love, sort of toward the other side of the coin, if you will. Love, as we've sort of already touched on, is also a bit of a problematic word. It is in danger of meaning so many things that it becomes meaningless, so ill-defined that it starts to lose its power. Sort of like the F-bomb, right? Anybody notice this particular evolution of our contemporary Western language? It used to be if you said that word, traffic stopped. Like you were, you'd saved that for spe- something special, you know? And now it's just like you're describing your, the handle on your lunchbox, you know, being a little fragile or something. It's just whatever. It's kind of generic. It's, one of my siblings who's spent most of their career around construction industry just calls it the universal adjective, right? So just as an illustration of the way words can lose their, can kind of lose their power through certain kinds of use or misuse or such a generic application that they cease to hold particularity and, and they lose some oomph along the way. So love can be like that too. And we've got so many definitions that we find it hard to know what it means to act in a loving manner because we don't know what the word means. Right? We don't know, what, we talk, don't know what we're talking about when we talk about that. Now, not the least of the causes for confusion is that the most common dictionary definitions of love tend to emphasize romantic love. And they often offer a first definition that's somewhere along these lines. Profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person, especially when based on sexual attraction. So that's often line one if we look up a definition or something like that, if we look up a definition of love. And I would say that's a pretty good that's a pretty good movie definition of love, right? I mean, if you think about romantic movies, uh, that kind of that that captures a lot of how love behaves, right, in those settings. Other definitions, if we kept going, might remind us that the sexual attraction component isn't essential. The problem, we might say, is that deep affection isn't really adequate to describe the power of love. Some folks that have thought a lot about this and they've written about it at length also seem to, in their writing, go out of the way to avoid defining the term. So an example of that is Diane Ackerman. Uh, Ackerman is the author of A Natural History of Love, so an extended consideration of this. And Ackerman says, quote, Love is the great intangible. Well, it's not unfair, but it's also not very helpful. <laughs> right? I don't think she starts it, but it's in the early going. Yeah, it's like, love is the great intangible. Thanks for coming out, you know. Yeah, because my publisher wanted a fulsome book. And she goes on to say, though, that everyone admits that love is wonderful and necessary, which I think is a little sweeping, but uh, anyway, we get it. Positive thing. And yet no one can agree on what it is. So makes the point early in a book that's the natural history of love that I, we're not going to define this. All right? Now I can hear that. It sort of lines up with what I suggested earlier about the way we use the love for so many things that it starts not to mean much in any context. So if we want to, let's say, learn how to love, how to act in a loving way in the world in general and not just in situations where we feel deep affection, how might we approach this problem of 
an ill-defined or undefined, or some would say undefinable, word. How, well, how do we deal with that if we're going to use that language? Well, one way to do that, and I've sort of hinted at this earlier, but one way to do that would be to agree about a definition that we can all use in this context. So the context of this particular exploration. Not the last word about what love means, but a, a definition that we can kind of carry consciously in these conversations and say that's the reference point that we're talking about when we use this word in this conversation. We could do that. And I'm going to suggest that that will be helpful, and I'm going to offer us a, a definition. So again, I'm not offering this so we can all agree to it in some universal way, but so that we have a common reference point in our conversations. This is sort of a, what, I, what I'm hoping for here is sort of a visible-to-all parties understanding uh, of what we mean when we use that word in this context. And this is from uh, M. Scott Peck's enduring self-help classic, The Road Less Traveled, 1978. That's an ancient book at this point. But he offers us a really, and I keep running into people who are still reading this book and rereading this book. Like, they, you know, it's a, it's a really meaningful reference point for some very thoughtful folks. I was like, maybe, maybe I need to come back and read this one again. Anyway, Peck defines love this way. And it, I, I like this when I ran across it in a secondary source. Peck defines love as, quote, the will to extend oneself for the purposes of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. The will to extend oneself for the purposes of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. And he goes on to say, love is as love does. Love is an act of the will, namely both an intention and an action. We do not have to love. We choose to love. I'm going to say the same thing's true about hate. We do not have to hate. We choose to hate. Are there circumstances that compel us in these directions, that deeply inform our inclinations? Absolutely there are. Are they the bottom line? Peck's saying, nope, I don't think so. He's saying, I think the bottom line here is actually will. It's actually a choice. And that expanded definition feels to me like it's both wise and it's challenging. Wise, I, I, hopefully that some of that's self-evident. It, it feels like it's a big idea. Challenging because it immediately calls for something from me. Like I, I can't pay serious attention to that understanding of what love is without it reflecting back onto me some things that need attention, you know? It undermines, among other things, the notion that we love instinctually, that we fall in love, that, that love is a thing that we're helpless before. It, it undermines that right away by reminding me that nurturing someone else's growth is a choice. It's an act of the will. I think it's pretty easy to see where we learn that love equals affection, right? Watch a, watch a baby respond to affectionate care. Watch a pre-verbal human interact with a loving caregiver and care provider. The, the, the exchange of something that's visibly love is not that hard to, to see. So we learn that aspect, the one that's about affection, we learn that long before we can speak of anything at all. And it is, of course, a foundational and and ongoing and an ongoing and important aspect of love. You deprive, you deprive newborns and infants of that exchange, and they do not thrive, right? But it's not the whole story, is it? Because to love the way Peck talks about it, we need to learn to mix a bunch of ingredients, affection, of course, but also things like care, recognition, respect, commitment, trust, honesty, openness. That list is interesting to me for a number of reasons, one of which is that many of the things on it, 
are not feelings. Listen to the list again. Affection, that's a feeling. Care could be a variety of things, right? We might feel like the desire to extend care, but also choosing to care when we don't feel like caring. That's still care, right? So care, recognition, respect, commitment. What does commitment feel like? I can tell you what it looks like quicker than I can tell you what it feels like, generally speaking. Are there feelings that go with it and around it? For sure there are, but also you can choose it. Same thing with trust or honesty. I can be honest when I don't feel like being honest. It's a choice. And so on with openness. So that's intriguing list to me that way. Now, if we're young, if we're fortunate when we're young, we learn to think of love as a feeling. We feel drawn to someone. We invest feelings or emotion in them. Here's a curious thing about that childhood or early years experience. That process of investing in someone has a name. And it's not love. The name is cathexis. And it's about care. It's about the exchange of care. It's an important process, and it's easily confused with love itself. And Peck makes the case that many of us continue to confuse cathexis with love, that we continue to confuse care, for example, with love. We can be cared for by someone who does not love us. That's not even difficult to find examples of, right? It's really not. <laughs> go, go to a hospital that has good staff, for instance, right? Interact with somebody in any situation where you have a need and you're appealing to them to help meet that need when it's a care-based situation. We wouldn't necessarily call that exchange love, would we? But it can have quite a sense of connection about it. That's cathexis. And the difference between those two things is one way to understand how we might feel deeply connected to someone. We might even insist that we love them even if they're hurting us or neglecting us. So whole raft of books about this, aren't there? Why do we stay with the abuser? Kind of that question. That's, that's the short version of this. And one way to understand that is that what we're feeling in those situations is cathexis. It's connection. But it's not love. We're misnaming it. Abuse and neglect are, by definition, the opposite of nurturance and care. They're the opposite of love. So if we're going to figure out a definition of love, we need to take some of those kinds of realities into account. All right, this is starting to feel like a lot of ideas. I want to leave us with just one further thought about the definition that I've suggested for us, and then we'll wrap this up for today. But I wanted to background this stuff at a little bit more length because we're going we're to look at love through a lot of different lenses over the course of this exploration. And knowing what it is we're talking about when we use that word feels like an important baseline. One final thought. The definition that I've suggested for us from Peck's work, in that definition, he uses the word spiritual. And we've talked about this in this space before, about that word. And so some of these thoughts probably won't feel new, but uh, if you're like me, at least the refresher might not hurt. So when Peck uses the word spiritual, he is referring to that dimension of our core reality where mind, body, and spirit are one. They're united. That's what Peck means by the word spiritual. He doesn't mean something religious and we don't need to be religious to hold that idea that there's something at the center of the self that animates us that gives us life if you will some of us have grown up around traditions that use the word soul for that force we can talk about life force we can talk about energy Uh, there's lots of different ways we can talk about that but i think most people who would be willing to entertain the notion that as humans we are spiritual beings work to try to find some way to talk about that animating force and peck peck's use of the word spirit here is uh, the understanding that that's the experience we have when all the bits are 
playing well together, mind, body, and spirit are one. And what's important in the context of our definition about that is this notion that there is something at the center of our being that when nurtured can help us know ourselves more deeply and truly and as a result be more able to engage in connecting, we might even say communing, with the world around us, including, of course, the people in that world. And that can help us begin to turn toward the idea that love is an action rather than a feeling. It's a verb rather than a noun. And that's important because it can help us begin to imagine that we are accountable for, that we are responsible for what we do in the name of love. Even if we learn somewhere along the way that we have no control over our feelings, most of us know that we choose our actions, that when we do something, it involves our will, it involves our intentions. And we also know that actions have consequences. If that's not a lesson that we've learned yet, our actions are liable to be, um, to, to need some redirecting, <laughs> to put it mildly, Right? What we might not think to do is consider how our actions shape our feelings. In Peck's words, love is as love does. So I would say in terms of takeaway from a lot of ideas, if we don't carry away anything else in our kind of mental back pocket to be able to reach in there and grab it and pull it out and examine it again, just that phrase, love is as love does. That shifts many things about ways in which we might otherwise use a word like love. and shifts it into the realm of will, of intention, of choice. All right, let's leave it there. Definitions can serve as starting points for imagination. If we don't imagine something, we almost certainly won't do it. Right? That's where action tends to have its genesis. Is first we kind of go, hey, I could, what if, right? That's imagination. That's imaginative. That's, that's seeing something that doesn't exist in real life yet. And then we move toward it. We start to do something in that direction. So I'm hoping that those, those attempts to expand the definition can help us imagine something about love that maybe uh, either we haven't imagined before or that we need to be reminded to imagine more frequently. So let's just start there. By imagining love as something we do, the actual place we want to get to, if you will, and then just see what sort of journey exploring that takes us on. All right? All right. Peace.